constant and evolving spiritual expansion and emotion emotional and and you know relational growth far more about that but you know the change is possible um but regardless you must be committed to doing the work you know you must be committed to doing that work and sometimes that work is painful sometimes it involves showing up and looking at the stuff Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I am your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Certified Life Coach. My brain is on fire. I live with Bipolar One, found sobriety only a few years ago, and since then have simply been trying to figure out this whole thing called life. Join me for storytelling and candid conversations in a safe space while together we find effortless sobriety and mental peace. You know the concept of paying it forward? That's what Hit Subscribe does. It sends a message out to all listeners with the teachings and lessons of the Together Sober podcast. Let's pay it forward. Hit subscribe. supposed to be interviewed uh, towards the end of season one and I started struggling just with my own motivation my own mental health and that's when I decided to take a break from the podcast for a couple of months at the end of last year and he was so gracious and understanding and um, equally as gracious and understanding as that he's back for one of the first interviews for season two so without further ado I'm going to introduce Dr. David Lee He's a certified recovery coach, experienced clinical psychologist, and recovered alcoholic, and has been sober from alcoholism and other addictions since July 29th, 2019. He sought personal therapy and went into the rooms of Alcohols Anonymous. He worked the 12 steps and has sponsored other fellows, and he's also attended other fellowships and has had his own coaching as well. Now, he was the archetypal high-performing mental health professional who qualified as a clinical psychologist in 2006 in the United Kingdom and worked professionally in both the UK and the UAE. He worked with many clients with varying problems, including adult, adolescents, and children and couples. However, behind the scenes, David was suffering personally from his own alcoholism, addiction, and related mental health problems. In 2016, David moved to Dubai with his ex-wife and son. His marriage was failing and his mental health was suffering. He drank alcohol from the age of 14 to 41. David's father was an alcoholic and alcohol dependence was widespread in both you know, his home, his extended family, and his community. So David entered recovery and became sober when his life really started to fall apart, both personally and professionally. His rock bottom was the gift of desperation that he needed. David recently trained as a certified recovery coach based on a foundation of personal lived experience as well as professional expertise. He now offers recovery coaching services as well as clinical work, integrating psychology, spirituality, and behavioral change work altogether. 
For far too long, David buried his suffering and addictions in the shadows. And as a recovery coach, a psychologist, and a recovered alcohol addict, he feels that it is now important for him to be the face and voice of recovery and sobriety. David, we're so excited to welcome you here, hear your story, and just get into it. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Louise. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Your story has, it's so multifaceted in so many ways, like without even hearing it, I have a gazillion questions for you. Um, but probably before we dive into them, why don't you, David, just I'll hand you the mic, the stage is yours and, you know, wherever you feel comfortable starting, you know, and finishing your story, we would love to just hear a little bit of your background and a little bit of your story. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you said there, it's multifaceted and it's only sort of in hindsight that you you recognize that because you go through life, right? You go through the, the flow of life and you kind of just take it for granted. And sometimes you don't realize how much growth and transformation has taken place until you kind of look back and you think, wow, did that really happen? And what was that all about? But I guess to start from the very beginning. Yeah. So I'm from the UK. I now live in Dubai. Um, and have done for um, coming, up to, coming up to eight years now. So I've been out here in the Middle East, in the UAE. Um, I'm from the northwest of England. I'm from Manchester. I, I grew up there. And uh, I guess I had what you could describe as a typical kind of working class, you know, upbringing, English, gritty kind of upbringing. But, you know, if I'm completely honest, there was a lot of adversity. There was a, a lot of in the way of addiction around me, um, trauma, quite a traumatic um, environment to grow up in. But, you know, you don't realize that at the time when you're a child growing up, you just sort of take it for granted. Right. You, 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 you get on with life and it's only kind of in hindsight sometimes. That said, it was difficult. You know, I recognized that. I was a lonely child, you know, so my father was alcoholic. That was never really, truly explicitly acknowledged, but it was very clear. You know, he would drink every day. It was clear that my dad was in a lot of pain. But beyond that, you know, there was widespread alcoholism in the family, particularly on my mom's side of the family, I would say. And I think, you know, the more I look at it and think about it, and I've done a bit of kind of research into this, going back generation on generation on generation for many years so I was quite an introverted child I think I had pretty low self-esteem I felt lonely I felt a sense of being sort of disconnected from my dad and um yeah I I, I wouldn't say I really wanted for anything sort of materially you know there was food on the table I was provided for but I just didn't have that connection. And I felt a lot of shame about that. And at times, if I'm completely honest, you know, I was criticized quite heavily by my dad. He was punitive. There was a lot of stuff that he did in the context of his drinking and his alcoholism that really, you know, led to, led to later trauma. And it was emotionally very, very difficult. My respite from that as I got older was, you know, I was pretty bright. I was academic. I was an introvert, really, but I was quite creative. So I had this kind of vivid imagination, you know, from the point of being very young and having imaginary friends and all that kind of things. And I grew up, I'm an 80s child. I was born in the late 70s, grew up through, through the 80s and, you know, got into that whole 
80s kind of memorabilia, Star Wars and the, the He-Man cartoons and all that kind of thing. I think I was pretty creative. and I think I got lost in that, you know, and uh, and I like to write. You know, there was a point where I really liked to write. I really thrived on sort of writing and creativity and that kind of thing. And then I found um, martial arts at the age of eight, nearly nine. I got into Taekwondo and I, and I, for some reason, I took to that, even though I was a very shy child and really reticent to go along at first. Uh, my mom took, took me along to the classes and, and that, that, that became my respite. I became pretty good at it. I persevered. At it. I, I got to, to like black belt level and then second down black belt level. I competed at national and international level. Um, that became my real passion. But in many ways, that's that's where I hid from some of the difficulties at home as well. There wasn't, I say there wasn't a lot of support there. I mean, I was provided for in terms of catering for my hobby to do it sort of financially. But um, if I'm honest, I didn't feel that there was any real interest from my parents in what I was doing or what I was achieving. I was just left to sort of, you know, get on with it. So yeah, I escaped into my my hobbies, you know, in, into Taekwondo, into to martial arts and into into my head, my 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 world, my imaginary world. I got into music as well. I never really learned to play a musical instrument, but I, I took a real interest in music. It was a passion of mine. I read a lot of books. And then at the age of 14, kind of going through puberty and adolescence, I discovered alcohol. It's not that alcohol wasn't there. It was always there, right? My dad was drinking constantly. It's very much a part of the family. But I got access to alcohol. You know, I, I had friends who could buy alcohol who looked a lot older than me. You know, they they were 14, but they could get away with, with looking 18, which is the legal drinking age in the UK. I couldn't. But I, I, I from there on, I had a steady uh, supply of alcohol and that was it. There was sort of no looking back for me from that point. I uh, I think I was addicted. It was pretty consistent from there on. You know, I, I, I would drink when I could at weekends. And then it wasn't really, there were no real boundaries set around that, to be honest with you at home. It wasn't like, oh, you're going out on the streets, you're drinking. It was pretty much like, well, there's there's beer in the fridge if you want to get one, you know. And that was it, you know. I mean, obviously... You know, we grew up, it was very working class upbringing. I, I hung out on the streets with my friends and things, and we tried other things. We dabbled in other things, but it was mainly alcohol. That was always, that really became my my go-to, you know, my gateway. And uh, slowly over the years, it progressed. I, um, like I said, I, you know, I, I was, I was pretty talented. Like, you know, I was, I was quite talented with the sports side of things, but academically as well, you know, and so I was like, you know, the, the, the absolute star um, student at school, but I I, I went on to um, study further and 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 I really tried it. I think I learned at an early age to. That's where the perfectionism thing came in. You know, I became I think a workaholic as well and became really all or nothing in my approach to everything. So yeah, I went on to study. I studied psychology. I think to understand my um, the misery that I was going through mainly and, and, and the difficult and the low self-esteem that I had and a lot of the shame hmm. and um, in hindsight, a lot of the trauma as well. So I studied psychology. Yeah, I did bachelor's degree in psychology in the UK, went on to do a master's degree and eventually to study at doctoral level in clinical psychology. And that was my entry point into becoming a clinical psychologist and a therapist. Hmm. Um, 
and and it you know it went from there i think it was more a journey of sort of self-exploration of trying to understand myself i was genuinely passionate about psychology and understanding people um and i think by that time i'd learned to sort of masquerade as a bit of a bit of an extrovert even though i was really an introvert so i learned i i learned skills for kind of connecting with people even though i don't think i ever felt fully connected mm -hmm. but the alcohol was a consistent it was a consistent theme you know I'm wondering, because as you describe your career progression and your educational yeah. progression, were there times during these, I mean, this is like a decade of education, right? That yeah. like the alcohol, you described yourself as a high performer in your intro. And mm. I'm just thinking to myself, did the alcohol get in the way during any of this? Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, it must have done, you know, it must have done, but it didn't stop me academically from getting where I needed to be. You know, it didn't like I wasn't held back in, in my studies at any point. I I, I just, you know, uh, carried on with it. It was something that I I, I always lent on. You know, I, I would burn myself out. I would but literally work myself into the ground and then go drink, right? Go drink on it. And um and I was a pretty consistent drinker as well. You know, yes, I'd have my binges. Yes, I'd get, I'd get, you know, completely drunk and then hang over and all that stuff, especially, you know, when I was in my late teens and into my 20s. And um, But I could also drink fairly sort of consistently. I have a few beers or a few glasses of wine or whatever, a few shots in the evening and uh, just to take the edge off it. So I always had that gnawing sense of anxiety and not good enough and like, I need to do more. I always had this, you know, what we talk about as the tyranny of the should. You should do more. You should be more. Mm. Uh, you know, the 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 A grade is not enough. I was never happy. I was never settled with what I was doing. I always had to learn more, be more. And it was, it was almost like, it was like relentless sacrifice, but it was like sort of, you know, suffering for my, I, I, I think I sort of, conceptualized it as suffering for my art but in hindsight some of it was was meaningless you know there was no concept of balance or self-care and compassion it was just like get better grades do more be more um it was very self-centered as i look back on it now but I, I honestly felt that well if i'm not there i'm not right at this level then i just nobody's gonna take me seriously no nobody's gonna like me value me take me seriously listen to what i have to say mm -hmm. genuinely feel that that was the struggle that i was i was facing day to day yeah yeah it sounds like you had to create that for yourself that appreciation and that like that support i'm curious like just hearing a bit about your upbringing i'm wondering as you started this path of psychology and your education how did your relationship with your immediate family, with your mom and dad, how did that change and progress into your 20s and 30s? Yeah. It was, what actually happened was I started my studies in psychology and I always stayed close to home. Um, so I had a relationship with them, but they were very much immersed in their own issues i think you know in their own struggles and their own sort of life just felt like a grind you know it was always a grind it wasn't that we were like lived on the on the on the bread line or anything or in poverty it was never like that but it just felt like my dad was suffering so much and there was so much there in terms of 
what was never really spoken about, you know, is that their relationship, I think, was one of extreme codependency, you know, on both sides. But that was never really spoken about. And so my dad was drinking every day. And I also, in hindsight, now recognize he had a gambling addiction as well. He wasn't like high stakes gambling, you know, like, you know, roulette or anything. Right. It was uh, it was really in the UK. We have like in the pub culture, there's the, the there's fruit machines. And that's what a, a lot of money was going into that. It was like um, a process addiction, I think, as well as the alcoholism. But it was just such uh, that them their marriage was just I think based around codependency looking back and I was very much like an only child because I had older brothers but my next oldest brother was nine years older than me so I I felt like I was raised very much as an only child so it's pretty pretty lonely in that sense in the home so yeah I got on with my studies they kind of were vaguely aware of what I was doing but didn't really really show in really ask me about it you know um and I just sort of got on with it I mean you know, my mom came to my grad, my first graduation, in fact, all three graduations, but never really showed an interest in what I was doing. Or I, I think that was just part of the culture she was from, you know, no, you know, discredit to her or whatever. Like she'd grown up in a family where that was just um, it just that wasn't the norm as well. You know, and it was a pretty to study psychology at that time it became very much in vogue in the 1990s to study, but, but not, not as like a working class English kid. It wasn't really, yeah. you know, male to study that like parents like, what, why are you studying? I remember my dad saying to me, like, go and get a proper career. You know, why, mm. why on earth are you going to study psychology? What, mm. what are you going to do with that? Um, so yeah, how, how did it change? Well, I actually lost my dad. My dad died very suddenly when I was 23. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was very young. He was only 51. He, he died of a heart attack. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we never really knew the details. I just n- know that he was very stressed. He lived day to day, pretty much with chronic stress. With the drinking, the alcoholism, and... Um, I believe, you know, he died prematurely and there was a lot that could have been done, could have been done to prevented that for him to have lived a very different lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but I'll be honest with you when I say it was sudden, but it wasn't really a surprise. And then everything changed from there. You know, everything was, everything changed. And surprising, like how little my dad gets spoken about now within the family, you know, but I just, I just carried on, you know, it's like tunnel vision. I just got to get through my studies. I think I took a couple of weeks off work and then I was back to it. I was working as a research assistant at that time mm-hmm. in psychology. And then I just powered on and then started my master's degree a few months later yeah. and then qualified and then on to the next thing. You know, by that time I'd put the Taekwondo on hold. You know, I was still, I was still into sport. I was still into like keeping fit in the gym. And then later I got into running and things like that. And, um, and I was in relationships from a pretty young age as well, you know, consistent relationships from the age of 17. I had a long-term girlfriend and then I went on to have another long-term relationship. And then in my late twenties, when, as I was graduating from my doctorate, I, I met my now ex-wife and then I became a dad at the age of 29. Um, for the first time, well, my, my only time, my, my, my son, who's now just turned 16. Mm. Um, so yeah, the family, uh, the family dynamics certainly changed after my dad passed away. You know, I think it, in some ways it pulled us closer. I, I sort of like to say that. 
but then there's there are a lot of fragmentations in the family a lot of feuds a lot of feuds that have carried on for many years and people not speaking to each other and uh i didn't speak to my brother for many years you know um and it's only been fairly recently after a big fallout that i actually started to speak to my brother again as i made an amend to him in sobriety mm. you know holding and harboring a resentment for many years yeah so take us to like i don't know what year we're in but take us to maybe like 2017 2018 mm. you know, and kind of paint a picture of I know you mentioned both personally and professionally things were really starting. Yeah. To yeah. Yeah. Talk. Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah. It, well, it's probably worth saying that, you know, I qualified as a, a psychologist um, when I was 28 and then I worked pretty consistently throughout my thirties and I worked a number of different settings in the UK, worked with different client groups, you know, it was good, good pretty, good experience across the board work really I mainly work with adults but I also did did um, a stint working with children as well and working with adolescents uh, I worked on inpatient units uh, outpatient units uh, or male inpatient units or female inpatient units and they went full-time into private practice so I was working with three private practices um, by that time when I got to my mid-30s at 36 I married my now ex-wife and then we decided to relocate to Dubai and that was a pretty spontaneous decision um I think my son was uh he was eight at the time or he was just coming up to eight and we decided you know we were running these private practices and we were we were doing that together um but you know it's a small business so there, there was a, a kind of although financially we were doing quite well we we struggled in the UK with the tax system and all that kind of thing and so we decided to take a trip out to the Middle East and see what Dubai was like and see, look at the opportunities. So I came out here in early 2016, we moved out here and all that time, you know, all, all of those years, the drinking was becoming worse and worse and worse. Um, the, just the, I think the stresses and strains of becoming a dad I don't think I was ready to become a parent when I did you know it doesn't sound particularly young I was 29 nearly 30 but I had been a student until I was 28 pretty much and really grown up you know I was used to having me time and yep. suddenly I had this little boy and realized I can't I'm not the priority here I can't just go to the gym when I want and I gotta and well, I really really struggled too, like with that. as a only child let's just call you your whole yeah. life David got to choose where you put your attention, like whether it was Star exactly, Wars or yeah. Taekwondo or it, like you always, it was just tunnel vision for whatever you needed to do. Um, in a very sort of, yeah, you're absolutely right. In a very introspective, introverted, self-centered kind of way. Like this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. This is what I need to do. Part of that was protective, I think. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, you know, I got this, this wonderful little boy. I mean, it was absolutely amazing becoming a dad, but I don't think I was ready for the, you know, the practical demands of that. And, you know, looking back now with a lot of hindsight, it's a wonderful thing, but a lot of regret. I don't think I was there for him emotionally in the way that I could have been, you know. And I, I think so many of us who've been through addiction would would have, would have now do things much different if we could. Um, but I, I genuinely struggled. And as I look back, it was a codependent relationship as well with my ex-wife, you know. And I don't say that in a... It, it, with any disrespect um 
it's been very difficult because it was it was a, a very acrimonious separation and divorce i think but i think if i'm completely honest i think we were we were really well and truly trauma bonded you know i think we loved each other but i think it was based around our um pathologies that we were bringing into into the relationship and then later into the marriage and i think addiction was always there or thereabouts my drinking became worse and worse and worse and was worse it both addiction and, or just you david was your wife also and I, maybe we don't want to go there but i'm just curious yeah I, I, or... I don't want to go into that too much but we'll put it this way we were drinking heavily together and i take responsibility for my recovery um but we're both drinking together and it become um yeah, it just became problematic. It became chaotic. And, you know, it it was, we, we, we loved each other and we couldn't be apart from each other or, or we, we held huge resentments towards each other. And, um, you know, I did things that I'm now not proud of doing, you know, I looked outside of the marriage and things like that. And I was always tempted to do that. And mm-hmm. fantasy part of me got caught up in, mm-hmm. in kind of looking elsewhere. And, um, yeah, and I struggle with that. You know, I struggle with process addiction and things like that. And there, there was just a lot of things. A lot of damage was done there. There was a lot of wreckage that was done over those years. And 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 it was a real on-off relationship. You know, we we once cancelled our wedding and separated, and then later get back got back together. And it was like the fairy tale, getting back together again. The reunion and everything was great. And then we had the marriage, and then it, we moved to Dubai. And things just got really, really, really difficult. Um, we really struggled to to deal with the demands that were on us, financial demands, um, settling, my son's schooling, all of those things. And um, my drinking just got worse and worse and worse. Um, I really felt the burden of financial pressure. My drinking got worse. I think I had this kind of delusional sort of idea that I hear a lot from people that they're going to move out to the Middle East and to a Muslim country and then they're, they're drinking and they're somehow going to control the drinking or not yeah, drinking. Supposedly it's not, not accessible, right? But Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's absolute nonsense, <laughs> right? People out here, I mean, in terms of the expat culture, I mean, there, there, is, there are big problems, you know, people start to drink more and more and more. I certainly did. And I got caught up in all of that culture. And to the point where in the end, it wasn't so much kind of going out in bars and, you know, entertaining all, all that kind of stuff and going to brunches here, which are a big culture. It started off that way. Yeah. But in the end, it was just kind of drinking at home and it just became progressively worse. And um, yeah, that was it. It was really in Dubai. The 2000, 2016 through 2019 I would say all of that period was kind of my dark night of the soul, really, yeah. you know, led that led to the real rock bottom. Yeah. Tell us about that. Like what, what led up to that? What is that rock bottom for you? I felt a lot of pressure because I, I was the only one that was like really working full time here. Mm-hmm. And Again, there was a huge disparity between the professional and the personal because I was really, really struggling personally. But yet professionally, you could say for a time I was I was thriving. I had some difficulties in in the where I was working at the time and in the clinics and I'd left my private practices behind in the UK. But I was, um, you know, there was like a shiny light kind of syndrome. Dubai is very kind of exuberant and it's very easy to get sucked in by more and more and more and more and I got sucked in a little bit by the lifestyle but also um I was doing a lot of media interviews you know I was on radio I was on tv I was doing a lot of stuff like that and uh, I think my ego 
really took over. And I think I was living from ego as an overcompensation for how I really felt underneath. So professionally, I'd go to work, work six days a week, really get stuck in. And, and you know, I had this, uh, my identity was all wrapped around that. But inside I was dying. You know, I was absolutely empty inside. And then, of course, there was a whole load of trauma from my past and the childhood issues and the emotional neglect and things that I hadn't dealt with. And a lot of that trauma was playing out again, being reenacted in my relationship. Um, Things just got worse, more and more desperate. I felt lonely. I felt disconnected. I really missed home. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't get back to the UK very much at all. In fact, I think we went over two years without ever going back at one point because things were just so turbulent in Dubai. and, 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 And I was, you know, um, struggling with consistent work for a while. And um, just always being so caught up in self-will in terms of what what is the answer? I can make this happen. I can make it here and everything's going to come good and we're going to be okay. And the marriage was dying. I was dying inside. We were growing apart. I was neglecting my son. You know, he made a lot of friends here and he was going to school and things, but more I think about it, the more I uh, I just became really, really needy and I'm really speaking, worried about all sorts of things. I'm curious if you're speaking in hindsight or if you had awareness during this time that everything was kind of starting to crumble. It's an interesting one because I asked myself this, this question now. Um, I think there was a gradual dawning awareness that things were getting worse and worse and worse and it was going to reach a crescendo mm-hmm. um but i don't think i was prepared to do anything about it you know it's like <laughs> yeah i don't think i was in in a position to do anything about it i don't think i had that insight at the time yeah. and that led me down a really dark path and um yeah the drinking got worse things spiraled out of control financially things spiraled out of control and then I ended up doing things that I'm not proud of. You know, I, I crossed some boundaries. I, I was contacting people that I shouldn't have been contacting with, former clients of mine. And I, I made um, contact that I shouldn't. I mean, it wasn't to the extreme that it could have been. But, you know, the thing is, when we live with, with alcoholism and addiction, we're sometimes living, we're living sick, right? And that's not just when we're under the influence. We justify things to ourselves anyway. And um, so that's what I did. I was lonely. I was sad. And I, uh, I, that led to a lot of trouble in my life. It led to the breakdown of my marriage. You know, I was found out and probably rightly so because, you know, things were getting really risky. When I prided myself on being very boundary in my work and, very, and really keeping that distinction, the professional, personal distinction, I may well have been suffering personally, Mm-hmm. But professionally, I was keeping it together. So I thought, so right? Thought, yeah. What I now realize, you know, yeah. doing the work, the therapeutic work that I've done is sadly what was really remiss. And it wasn't emphasized in my clinical training in the UK was the need for personal therapy, you know, that all therapists should really have that as, as the core of their training. Yeah. And I didn't, I neglected it. I had brief periods in and out of therapy in the UK, but I didn't. So I always say, I always credit a lot of my recovery to my therapy and my therapist who actually told me I needed the, the, the 12 steps would benefit me. And then I really needed it um, as, as well as my 12 step fellowships, you know? And um, yeah, I think in hindsight, it all came crashing down. That's what it felt like. I mean, you know, to the point where 
it was just trauma. It was like an explosion. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden I was being kicked out of my house. I just couldn't stay. I was in trouble. I was getting in trouble with my regulatory body in the UK. My ex-wife was contacting the police and things like that and contacting my employers and all sorts of things. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to fully get into that and say, say, speak badly about her in any way, but the, the, the wreckage that I caused because I was so caught up yeah. in, in my addiction and my alcoholism and my mental health was at such a low point. I did some things I'm really not proud of and it was all a bit blurry, but again, I went into survival. Dave needs to survive. You know, first of all, I need a place to live, even if it's a temporary place, how am I going to see my son? And to cut long story short, what I actually have, what transpired over the coming months and this, we're in 2019 now was that my, my son went back to the UK with my now ex-wife and I haven't lived with him since, you know, I, I, I'm in touch with him for a period of time. I wasn't, that was really difficult, but I tried to get back to see him when I can. And that's been a gradual amend making process of trying to make it up to my son. But, um, I, 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 a series of events happened, you know, I, I got into a lot of trouble. My, my, my career was really badly hindered. I, I was at a period of time out of work. I did get back to the UK for a while and stayed with family. And then I returned to Dubai and I carried on drinking, knowing that my career was in crisis. I wasn't really having contact with my son. My wife, ex-wife now, had filed for divorce. I was broke. I was broken. I was desperate. I was lonely. I was here in Dubai on my own. And a lot of friends had walked away from me. So I had my sort of professional circle. But that was it. of course, people know that things are going wrong for you. And then there was this moment where I just knew, I knew that I needed help. And I started therapy back in the UK when I was back there for a brief period of time in summer 2019. And then there was a moment when I returned to Dubai, a few weeks after I returned, I carried on drinking where I think it was the first spiritual experience that I've had in my sobriety journey because I'd taken my last drink and I was... Something told me I was aware that I'd taken my life. I hadn't entered. I hadn't gone into recovery formally. But you but something told me you've taken your last drink, that tomorrow you're going to walk into those rooms. And I did. And I took it really seriously because I had no place to go. I had no place. I had another option, right? But it, it, it didn't mean that I was going to stick around much longer. And and I I went into the rooms I got a sponsor very quickly. I was having therapy at this time. And I worked it if for no other reason and I had nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, and 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 was really codependent and just clung to the program and my sponsor and thought it's I your am new addiction. A, <laughs> I'm yeah, I was a mess, you know. I was I was a mess, a mess clinging to the program and thought, you know, just tell me, tell me how to get out of this financial mess and how to get back my son back and how to and I just really didn't know whether I wanted the marriage back or not even though I knew it had gone so wrong and then there was a gradual awakening that yeah no this is I, not going to be a good idea you're moving in a new direction now. what you just said I think is so so honest and true in that your reality of those very beginning days weeks months I don't know how long it was but like that is like 
yes, you stop the drinking, right? <clears throat> and then get ready for a shitstorm. Let's be honest, right? Because absolutely, one hundred percent. You just finally released yourself. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Forty years of stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's all coming back. So it's all coming back. Yeah. And like, guess what? Your son didn't come back the next month. And guess what? Y you couldn't pay your bills the next month. And guess what? You know, your, your job didn't come back the next month, right? Like, no, no, gradual I, was, process. I didn't know how I was going to get back to work. I was in trouble in the UK professionally, you know, in a regulatory sense. And that's, yeah. that's hung around for such a long Those... time. You know, these things don't, don't get resolved quickly. And yeah, it was just the matter of like buttonholing things to say, oh, I got to start dealing with this stuff. Cause then things came out of the woodwork, right? There was stuff that not, cause we'd live very chaotically things that I thought was happening, payments were being made that weren't made. So then I'm like buttonholing things and ring fencing things going, oh, I need to pay that now. I need to pay that. And then my sponsor was saying to me, you need to go and make that amend. Mm -hmm. That's a financial amend that needs, needs making as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. And you need to speak to this person. So it was getting my life in order. It, it was growing up, basically. It was learning to grow up quickly um, and use the program. And and this was really new to me, that the idea of not just use the program for from a, a self-centered point of view, but to let go and trust and to build a relationship in God. I'd never really thought about that before because mm -hmm. I had this idea of, oh yeah, I believe in the universe and I believe in manifestation and all this thing. But did I have faith? Yeah. No, I didn't have faith. I didn't have faith. I, I had faith in, in, in me and my ability to work hard and to muscle my way through everything. But I didn't, I didn't have a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity and take care of me because that was a process that was a process of surrender and let go yeah i'm curious i think in sobriety we can probably all say that before we do the real recovery i'm not just talking about stop drinking i'm talking about the real recovery we hold a set yeah. of values and then i think mm -hmm. many of us myself included those values change like after yeah. are there any that you think about kind of I think we can say pre and post David, if, if, if that's fair, like in terms of the, the value set that you held prior to this recovery work that you've done. And yeah. Some of the key values that you hold today, like what, what's. The uh, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. You know, I still have to work to um, catch myself and correct those because these, these old values can slip back right back in again. Right. And sometimes they just emerge as more of a feeling of, I got to live like this. I got to do that. And, and then I, I need to slow down and say, this is not how we live now. So, yeah, I mean, I live from the standpoint of self, you know, self-protection, self-centeredness, mm -hmm. lived a lot of my life based around self-centered fear, um, protection from being seen as not good enough and all of this stuff. So, you know, I was trying to survive and do what I needed to do. You know, I wanted to be something. I always wanted to be something. I always wanted to achieve something. It wasn't I just wanted to uh keep my head above the water and 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 yeah i did want to survive but i always thought i'm gonna i'm still gonna shoot for the stars i want to be really good in my field i want to do this i want to be good at sport i want to be great at psychology um but i wanted to achieve to impress i wanted to make a name for myself and then the 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 letting go of that has been really painful and still is but but the the replacing that with kind of new ideas and new values which center around being of service you know being of service to others, being compassionate to others, showing up 
to be a part of somebody's life, to be a positive influence. For example, in my son's life, you know, and I, I remarried again recently. I've got a wonderful marriage now. But, you you know, as we all know, you have to work at relationships, right? You have to work at marriages. And you can say it's wonderful. It's a, it's amazing. You know, it's a fairy tale. But it it's not. It's two human beings trying to get along in a world. And, you know, this is my my wonderful life. My wonderful wife, who I'm blessed to have in my life now, who's been with me since early sobriety. But I had to redefine what it was to love somebody and be committed to that person you know and i had to learn that it isn't that we have to just sacrifice ourselves for other people and subjugate our needs but we have to we, we can be compassionate to others and loving to others and give to ourselves at the same time and have respect for ourselves that for me was a real awakening and to realize that i'm being kind to myself when i'm being of service to other people you know, I'm 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 staying sober, of course, but I'm also um I'm being of service. I'm doing something that's meaningful. Um and that's about, you know, letting go. I think I think I like this expression that I came across recently. I think uh, a lovely value and a lovely aspiration is to be a good ancestor, you know, mm. to be to do good in the here and now with the purpose of hopefully inspiring future generations not from being you know this icon or idol but you know if i if i in some way if i can break the intergenerational pattern of trauma and addiction in my family and suffering then i hope that by god's will i i, I can do that in some way and that if i can help others to be able to do that i think that's time well spent but i never looked at it like that before because it was all about me. I just wanted to be the big I am. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's fulfillment. And I think in the place of service, that's actually the beauty of it is it does come full circle because by being in service, you're actually filling up your own cup too. So in a sense, for sure. Absolutely. Much, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the cycle continues. Um, yeah. I think you mentioned, and forgive me if I'm off track, but I think you mentioned to me sometime before us, having this conversation today, something that you really focused on, I don't know if they're your own keystone habits or somebody else's keystone habits, but something that you've implemented in your own life or maybe with clients or both. Can you speak a little bit to what those are? Yeah, sure. Well, I, um, you know, I believe very much in, you know, if you're going to promote something and espouse something, then try to, you know, walk your talk and try to embody those yourself. And yeah, I really believe in that. And, and you know, I'm a big fan of Keystone Habits, you know, I'm a big fan of the practicality of getting stuff done, you know, living your life in a certain way, but more in a way of sort of, you, you know, what, what you're seeking to embody the values in your life. So um, I think... Uh, Certainly having routine, certainly having routine, but also being flexible within that routine. So I have, I, I pretty much have a non-negotiable morning routine. You know, I get up every morning, I do my prayers, I do my meditation. Um, I, 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 I do my programming stuff. You know, I do, I, I look back on my, I take inventory of myself. I look back on my inventory from the day before. Is there any corrective action I can take? What could I have done better? And so I have my morning routine and my evening routine. You know, exercise is a big part of it. Um, and it's that's less about, you know, going out and 
beasting myself these days and and you know um trying to run ultra marathons and all of that kind of thing it's more about just showing up um if anything during my recovery i, I you know i haven't been because i i lost i lost the sense of co the competitive edge just for my own sake right um but i try and show up i try and exercise i try and run i walk i go to the gym when i can affirmations are a big part of it you know i'm a big believer in in you know what we what we the affirmations that we set and and visualizing and what we want is that there is a you know god is inherent in all of us it is the part of us that so i use affirmation and visualization very much um but really trying to get into good keystone habits in terms of sleep and rest non-sleep rest taking time in the day to just do nothing sometimes and that's really hard when you've got a busy schedule but sometimes we got to look at our own role in that and say why is my schedule so busy are there things i can scale back on here uh can i create some space yeah you know the the like, um oh so sorry i'm hearing non-negotiable like this basic it's so simple but they're just truly non-negotiables and i think it's something yeah we always need to be rechecking for ourselves. Just recently, I found myself in a position where I was compromising my morning workout. I was compromising yeah. my afternoons with my daughter, um, all because I like slowly found myself being sucked into this, you know, world of work. And I all of a sudden had to take yeah. back and say, wait a second, like, and I was miserable, right? And I'm like, why am I miserable? <laughs> I've sacrificed Absolutely. my ketone habits, right? Um, I've sacrificed my non-negotiables. <laughs> Your non-negotiables, absolutely. And I think sometimes we need to question for what end we do. Some things are a keystone habit for us. So, for example, I, I've always said I'm a voracious reader, right? I read a lot. I read a lot of books and listen to a lot of podcasts and and listen to a lot of audio books as well. But I've also like I've always liked you know physically hold it hard copies of books and read them. Yeah. Um, but I'll be honest with you, like in recent months, I haven't read very much at all. And I, I think there's a reason for that. I haven't, I've tried not to beat myself up for that, but I thought I've maybe just needed that space to not overload myself cognitively. You know, if I'm just constantly reading psychology, spirituality, self-help books, and you know, how, how much do you want to overload yourself with conflicting information or do you want to take a step back? So it's sort of, sort of taking a step back from that for, for a time, I think. And just to be with myself sometimes, just to develop, um, you know, kind of contemplative um, space mm -hmm. sometimes to, to reflect, to just chill and listen to yeah. music sometimes as well. Yeah. That that definitely should be one of my non-negotiable non keystone habits because it's good for me. It well, gets me in a good in a good mood when I listen to some music that I enjoy. You know. Yeah. And it sounds like you're listening to yourself. And I think a lot of times we do get caught up in forming the habit and forget why we're forming the habit. Um, For and sure. So yeah, I, that's I what I'm a, saying. Yeah. I think a morning routine is a perfect example of that. Like, I give myself flexibility to change that. So sometimes it does include journaling every day or affirmations. Yeah. But ironically, my morning routine this year has switched to reading. That's all I do. I wake up and I read, you know right. what I mean? And, and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what my mind and my body is telling me I want and that I need, right? Um, and so I think it's really important to, I, I think like kudos to you, even though you're an avid reader and that's something that typically has been a daily practice, 
to say, you know what, like my body and mind is telling me something else right now. Um, that I need something else right now. And yeah. I need a bit of respite from this. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it gets very obsessive. It gets obsessive and compulsive, exactly. you know, we're at addicts. the same time. We're addicts. This is what we're going to do. We're addicts. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> and I can do everything in, in an addict esque way. You know, I can do my like my morning routine. You know, I, totally. I, I can be addicted to reading my prayer cards and my just for today card because my head is telling me that that's why it's the tyranny of the do. should again. But are you doing it? Absolutely. Right. Are you doing it for that's it. reasons? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a really, really good point. Um, okay, David. So I were five years into sobriety. The journey mm. is far from done. We know that. Um, what is on the horizon for you? What are you working on next? Tell us what is mm. next for you. Well, personally, I'm still doing a lot of personal work, you know, on myself and still working with my therapist. I'm still addressing things that I'm look, I've come a long way because what I believe is, you know, my my recovery from addiction from alcoholism has not just been that. It's also been recovery from past, past trauma as well, and that's ongoing. So being able to do the shadow work, if you like, and shine light on the dark stuff. Um that's a work in progress, and uh, and and I believe it is about progress, not perfection. So yeah, I'm still 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 doing a lot of work on myself. It's daily work. Professionally speaking, I believe, and I think it's God's plan. I'm still working clinically as a psychologist, um, but I believe I'm moving much more towards addiction recovery in general and helping and supporting people in that way. So I have a brand, The Sober Way. I'm a recovery coach. Um, I spend a lot of my time recovery coaching now, moved more generally into addiction recovery as well in terms of supporting people to get into rehab if they need it, interventionist work, a um, little bit of kind of sober transportation work, that kind of thing. Um, so I guess I'm both... Uh, a coach and a clinician these days i like i say i still i still i'm still keeping my hand in clinically um and just about to get get certified as as we uh, rcp as they say recovery coaching professional um and that's on top of i that's on the back of um coaching training i did years ago you know i trained as a accredited executive and performance coach and they go together they're different they're just different client groups really um, I mean, there's an overlap as well. The executive clients who are also struggling with sobriety, right? I think that's where I'm well-placed. So I'd love to really expand on the coaching work. I'd love to become much more fully. And, and that that's my intention really now is to become much more fully present in the addiction recovery coaching field in helping others and being able to be a voice and a face of recovery and share my story if it's going to be helpful, right? Not just telling my story though, but helping others genuinely showing up with authenticity to help people. Cause that's where my real passion is. And if I'm completely honest, I, I want to write and I'd like to write. And that's another thing that I, because I'm an addict and a procrastinator, I procrastinated on for such a long time, but I think there's a, there's, there's a book coming. I'm working on a few ideas right now and trying to hone them a little bit, but I'm for sure I'm going to write and I spend a lot of time getting, getting, you know, writing content for social media at the minute and writing a course. I've got a 12 week um, sobriety uh, program, which is really geared to alcoholism and just helping individuals to get sober in the first instance and to 
um, you know, to work a structured program to do that. That's completely compatible with like 12 steps and things like that. But it's um, that that's where my my effort is going at the minute, kind of professionally and what I'm moving towards. And yeah, and I guess personally, you know, just recently remarried. Um, I'm we're just kind of happy at the minute. I think we we're here in Dubai for now. I, I think we're going to move. I think we're going to move eventually. Um, I think we may end up back in the UK. Uh, but I think what I would like to do is keep links here in Dubai and possibly work internationally. My wife is from the Philippines and she has family in Philippines and Canada. So um, we're going to see how, how that transpires, really. But got a lot going on personally and, and, you know, professionally right now. I mean, I love hearing actually that I think for a lot of your life, you you intentionally had a personal and a professional divide. And what I'm hearing True. is yeah. like if there's really a more holistic approach kind of going into the future in terms of like the interests you have and this, you know, the type of service that you'll be performing, it really seems to feel like it's just David, right? It's not personal, yeah. professional. It's it's kind of just all becoming one, um, which I think is really yeah. Exciting for you if people wanted to like either find you or find the Facebook group or the course you talked about what's the best way for people to and we'll put it in the notes as well but just what's the best way yeah absolutely 100% so uh, on Facebook uh, I'm Dr. David Lee on Facebook Dr. David is one word then Lee L-double-E uh, I also have a page, The Sober Way, which is my brand. I have a Facebook group called uh, Sober Success Mastery, uh, which is quite a, a new group that's set up. Um, and on Instagram, I am uh, at The Sober Way Coach. Perfect. Those are the best um, social media handles to find me on. I think those those are the ones that I'm, I'm most active on, really, in yeah. terms of my addiction recovery work. Yeah, You put a lot of really thoughtful content. Like, I always am kind of forced to stop and look if that makes sense like there's something oh bless really, yeah thank you yeah. yeah no it really it really draws you in so um well thank you so much for being here I have thank um, you it's been my pleasure absolutely <laughs> uh no <laughs> honestly I mean I just have one more question I'm, I'm I might be throwing you for a loop on this one but um and there's certainly no right or wrong answers but you know, coming out of today's conversation and, and just your story in general and what the future yeah. is for you, if yeah. there's kind of like one key message that you love listeners to just make sure you take this home with you today, what is that message coming out of today's conversation? Yeah. I think that change is always possible. And for me, change has not been what I thought it would be. And what I say to people is that don't assume that because you have a kind of stereotyped idea of what change is, that if you start to change, that it's it's a bad thing, that it's not progressing in the direction that it should. My change, and it's a work in progress, you know, it's progress, not perfection, has been far more about surrender, letting go, unlearning, relearning, healing, really about constant and evolving spiritual expansion and emotion, emotional and, and, you know, relational growth. Mm -hmm. Far more about that. But, you know, the change is possible. Um, 
but regardless, you must be committed to doing the work, you know, you must be committed to doing that work. And sometimes that work is painful. Sometimes it involves showing up and looking at the stuff that you don't really want to look at, or that it's easy to not look at doing the healing work, the inner work, you know, that we so often run from. And, um, but when you are committed to that and you can approach it through the lens of making progress one day at a time, one step at a time, rather than absolute perfection, I think you're on the way. Yeah, I think you're such a beautiful example of the journey may start as one thing, alcohol. And the reality yeah. is that if you're open to the process and you're open to that journey, it it really becomes absolutely like, trust the process. Yeah, so much more. Yeah, and I think I, I think that's why you've kind of made the progress that you have is that you've been willing to to dive into those the depths of areas that um, have been buried for so long. Um, yeah. So it's been necessary, you know, not easy but necessary. Yeah. yeah. Amazing for sure. Good. Well, thank you again, Dr. David Lee, for being here. I have thoroughly enjoyed your story, your insights, all the work you're doing and all the work that is yet to come um, from you. You have to let us know about that book. I have a feeling it's coming. <laughs> um, it will come. It'll, it'll come. come. It'll come. And together, sober listeners, Thank you for listening. And you will hear from us in a couple weeks with another story and conversation. If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you really liked this episode. And if that's the case, can you please go ahead and rate and review the Together Sober podcast? What this does is organically puts the podcast into more listeners' ears, thus creating more lasting, and effortless sobriety and mental peace for others.